Refugee advocates and local officials renew calls for increased funding following second death of asylum seeker in Mississauga. A town in Alberta votes in favor of a quote-unquote neutrality bylaw in order to remove a rainbow crosswalk. Canada is a sought-out country for people to do fraud within. The New York Times says it's investigating a freelancer the paper worked with after she liked several pro-Israel social media posts. And 13 people have died on an attack at a church in Burkina Faso. Good morning. It's Monday, February 26th. I'm Nora, and here are your headlines. We start today in Mississauga, where an asylum seeker died while waiting for shelter. Advocates say that the refugee claimant was from Kenya, and she had to wait for hours outside of a shelter before she was allowed in the building. She died 24 hours later at a hospital after experiencing a quote-unquote medical emergency, according to a Regent of Peel spokesperson. Her name was Delfina Njoji. She was 46 years old and a mother of four. Her children all still live in Kenya. CP24 didn't include this information for some reason. Delfina is not the first person to die in Ontario's refugee shelter system, and she's not even the first person to die at this shelter. Three months ago, someone from Nigeria died outside the same shelter. The deaths have led to several African-Canadian groups calling for increased support and funding for refugee claimants. In a statement, a spokesperson for the region of Peel echoed this call, saying, quote, We all continue to advocate to all levels of government for more funding to support the settlement and integration of asylum seekers, while expanding access and investing more in housing subsidy, wraparound supports, and health care for vulnerable communities. According to CP24's Cody Wilson, Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown said that 80% of people in the Peel region shelter system are asylum seekers, with the majority being from African countries. Back in November, Ottawa announced $7 million for Peel region specifically to help create a welcome centre for refugees. It's unclear if that money has yet made it to the region. And this is on top of $362 million that the feds pledged through the Interim Housing Assistance Program to help provinces and municipalities deal with the rise of asylum seekers coming into the country. But obviously there's something still not working at all. Turning next to Alberta, where residents in the town of Westlock voted to pass something called a neutrality bylaw. It's not actually neutral at all, but anyway, it bans flags and crosswalks that support, quote, political, social or religious movements or commercial entities, unquote. Oh, my God. CBC's Aaron Sousa reports that of the 1,300 people who voted, 663 voted in favor of the new bylaw and 639 voted against. That is awkward. What a divided town. Oh, my God. This means that the town's only rainbow crosswalk will likely be removed. The idea to paint the crosswalk was brought forward last May by the Gay Straight Alliance at a local high school. The town's councillors voted unanimously in favor of it because, you know, when a bunch of teenagers are like, hey, let's make a rainbow thing and be really positive, adults uh, tend to say, yeah, that's a great idea, not, no, you stupid kids, stop being biased, we need neutrality. <laughs> what a bunch, bunch of ghouls on that side, my God. 
the crosswalk was painted last summer and it's just outside of the town hall. CBC reports that town staff received a petition from a group called the Westlock Neutrality Team, led by local resident named Stephanie Baker. Now, I looked up Stephanie Baker and found her big speech convincing people to vote against different colored paints on the ground. And it also included this hilarious comment, quote, So I'm asking you to stretch your own courage and stand up for equality, not equity and neutrality, unquote. (laughs) I also fell into a bit of a rabbit hole on Rumble last night watching interviews with her and freaky far right church people. This woman sucks, man. (laughs) The petition called for a bylaw that would ensure that, quote, crosswalks and flags on public property remain neutral, unquote. I don't think that they define neutrality, though, which is kind of a funny thing in all this. I haven't seen what a definition of neutral actually is. It's just assuming that we understand what Baker is saying, which is no gay crosswalks because it makes her sad or something. According to CBC, Baker was supported by another resident named Benita Peterson, who was an organizer with the group called Take Back Alberta. A quick reminder that Take Back Alberta is the group that effectively took over the UCP and championed Danielle Smith into the premiership, taking Alberta back from uh, the right, uh, Jason Kenney. (laughs) In an interview with CBC News, Baker said that the motivation behind her petition comes from a belief that governments should stay neutral. That is an idiotic belief, by the way, because governments are literally political by definition. That's what they are. They're political. They are political. That's what they are. Baker told CBC News that, quote, council has tried very hard to say that we were against the pride community. But for us, it's not the group that they chose to promote. It's the fact that they're promoting any group whatsoever, unquote. The town's mayor, John Kramer, told CBC that he was disappointed by the vote, but not discouraged, saying, quote, we know that work of inclusion is not a straight line, but our commitment to inclusion is not negotiable. The future is inclusive, and we know the path forward as a council, unquote. The town has 30 days to implement the new law, and I believe that council was united against it. So, hey, city council, you got to organize around this stuff. Baker actually was organizing, and that's how she won. And she told a lot of people that she was for neutrality, not that she was literally declaring war on a bunch of kids in town. So I hope that, uh, you know, you start organizing around these people and getting them to shut up, (laughs) frankly. Next, to an investigation from Jeff Yates and Nicolas de Rosa for Radio-Canada titled Le Canada Cible Numéro 1 des Fraudeurs Internationaux, or Canada, the number one target for international frauders. The investigation starts in a regular office building in Kiev where 150 people are calling Canadians and asking them to invest in cryptocurrencies, except none of it is real. They're all fraudsters and they're looking for people who might be vulnerable. They talk to them about whatever might get them to trust them and then try to milk them for what they can. To advertise themselves, the fraudsters make social media posts that feature famous Canadians that, when you click on them, link to a website that looks like it might be CBC or La Presse about how this famous person made money off of this scheme, all in the goal of getting an individual to put down an initial investment of $250. Canada is a particularly attractive place for scammers, the report explains. The journalists talked to private investigator Mark Solomons, who says this, quote, These criminals love Canada. Canadians are nice, relatively rich, and have saved relatively more for retirement. Plus, you have a federal government and a system of regulation that inevitably creates inefficiencies that lack coordination and that don't share information sufficiently, unquote. In 2023, Canadians were defrauded $309 million. That was nine times higher than in 2020. Most of that fraud was related to cryptocurrencies, and only between 5 and 10% of this was actually reported to Canada's anti-fraud agency. 
Neither Melanie Jolie nor Dominique Leblanc agreed to be interviewed for the story, though it is kind of interesting that there's a federal candidate that talked so much about cryptocurrencies and how great they were to invest in, the, in them. I wonder how much Polly Evers talking about cryptocurrencies primed a vulnerable population that might listen to what he says to be more willing to try investing in cryptocurrencies and be more vulnerable to this kind of fraud. Next, the New York Times say that they are investigating a freelance reporter or a freelance filmmaker, I guess, who wrote several stories for the New York Times about the events of October 7th after she liked several social media posts that indicated a pro-Israel bias. In a statement, a spokesperson for the paper said, quote, we are aware that a freelance journalist in Israel who's worked with the Times has, quote unquote, liked several social media posts. Those likes are unacceptable violations of our company policy. We are currently reviewing the matter, unquote. Now, it isn't just that she's liking these posts. And some of the posts are, you know, genocidal. <laughs> that's that's a bigger problem. But it goes far deeper than this. The freelancer being investigated is Ennett Schwartz. And she's liked several posts, including one that called for Gaza to be turned into a slaughterhouse if Hamas didn't return the hostages taken on October 7th. Schwartz's byline appears on several stories published in the newspaper since November, the most notable being the one that detailed sexual violence perpetrated by Hamas on October 7th. In fact, Schwartz's reporting is the reason for why sexual violence has been linked to October 7th. The Intercept reported last month that the article was subject of heated internal debate at the New York Times, leading to shelving an episode of The Daily that covered the story. The paper's policy states that journalists, quote, must not express partisan opinions, promote political views, endorse candidates, make offensive comments, or do anything else that undercuts the Times' journalistic reputation. Now, Schwartz also wrote this article with another person who was related to her, which is also strange. Neither of them have a history of investigative reporting, and a lot of the details that have been reported in that piece are coming apart. And finally, at least 15 people have been killed in Burkina Faso. It happened at a Catholic church while people gathered for mass in the northern village of Esikane, near the border with Niger and Mali. There have been other Christian churches attacked in the north of Burkina Faso, and some members of the clergy have been abducted. Al Jazeera reports that about half of Burkina Faso is not actually controlled by the government. Instead, armed groups are in control of different regions. Thousands of people in Burkina Faso have been killed, and more than 2 million people have been displaced as a result of the violence. Since January 2022, there have been two military coups in Burkina Faso, and the military leadership has not been able to achieve peace. The Africa Center for Strategic Studies has found that the deaths at the hands of armed groups have almost tripled as compared with the 18 months previous to August 2023. Those are your headlines for Monday, February 26th. I'm Nora. It's Monday. I hope you have a wonderful Monday and I hope that you've got, uh, you know, work that you're looking forward to that, uh, you know, and if you're not... uh, I hope you can get through it. You're listening to this podcast at sandynor.com on the Real News Network podcast feed and anywhere you get your podcasts. I will talk to you tomorrow.